So this morning we're stepping back into the Gospel according to Luke. Last week we did a sermon on money, but now we step back into the Gospel according to Luke as we are just walking slowly through this account of the life of Jesus. And we come to this part of the Gospel that I think most of you know. Uh, It even has a, most people even in broad culture, like just culture broadly, know about this event. It's sometimes called the temptation of Christ. Or maybe the testing of Christ. It's that moment where he goes into the wilderness and Satan appears and tempts him three times. But there is so much going on in this passage. Maybe things you've never seen before. I hope that we can unpack that this morning. And there will be some direct application right where you and I live today. So before we jump like into the passage, we want to put the passage in context. So what's been happening before we ever get to this moment that Luke records about the time Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. If you remember, just before this is recorded, that is, in terms of the events in the life of Jesus, the event, the thing that Luke records just before Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, is that moment where Jesus goes to John the Baptist, if you remember this, and Jesus is baptized. He is baptized. And he comes out of the water and then something like a dove appears and descends onto him. The Spirit of God. And if you remember, God the Father says something from heaven after Jesus is baptized. It's Luke chapter 3, verse 22. The last part of verse 22. Here's what we hear. This is the last event recorded before we get to our passage today. These words from God the Father. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The word of God spoken to Jesus. You are my son, in whom I am well pleased. That's the word of God to Jesus. And as we've talked about, this is this moment where we just have more unveiling of this special relationship between God the Father, God the Son. And here Luke is being very clear. As he's already been up to this point, but here in this moment, we know this Jesus is fully God. There's no doubt about this. This Jesus is fully God. But you know, when Luke describes Jesus as fully God, he's got to put that other one right next to it, right? He's not just fully God, he is fully human. This is, the, this is what is unique about Jesus. This is what we describe as the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus, fully God, fully human. And so right after this declaration from the Father, this word from the Father to the Son about this special relationship, about Jesus being fully God, Luke wants to make sure that we also understand he's fully human. And to to make sure we get that, he's going to track Jesus' family line through Mary all the way to Adam, the first human being. Here's how he ends that part. So this is the last part of Luke 3 where he gives that genealogy of Jesus. We're not going to read the whole thing. Just go with the last part. Jesus was the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That's how the genealogy ends. And so Luke wants to make sure that we understand that this Jesus, fully God, is also fully human. And also what's happening here is that this link to Adam tells us something else. You see how he ends it? He ends it by linking him to Adam, the first Adam. Not only is this first Adam fully human, and Jesus therefore fully human, 
But it also is telling us something else. And we've noted this a few weeks ago, but I want to make sure we get it. You remember what happened to the first Adam, right? He messed up. Like he jacked the world. Like the world is messed up because this Adam, the, who represented the, the Adam and Eve, Adam, the representative of humans in that moment in the Garden of Eden, he messes the whole thing up. Disobeys God and the world goes to pot. We're done. We're under this curse, sin and death. And so now, this Jesus comes in, this son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God, comes into the world. Here's why. I'm going to make just this summary so we can keep it moving. Jesus is the new Adam. He's the new Adam that's going to fix everything the first Adam messed up. There's never been a human who's come into the world and done it perfect. Who's obeyed everything God has commanded. The first Adam messed it up and every human being has been messing up ever since. But now one human shows up. Who's going to fix everything. He will do what the first Adam could not do. So just so we remember how all of it happened back in the beginning. Let's just take a trip back in time. Genesis 3 verse 1 through 7. Here's how it all went down. Genesis 3 we're right at the front of the Bible, verse 1 through 7. We're in the Garden of Eden, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, the woman said to the serpent, he, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig trees together, fig leaves together, and made coverings for themselves. That's how you and I got into our predicament we find ourselves today. That was the moment. So what I want us to see here as we kind of took a, like a trip back in time is what is key. What is key to the plan of attack that Satan uses in this moment here in the Garden of Eden. The main thing he does is he questions God's word. He attacks. He attacks God's promises. He undercuts the trustworthiness of what God says. That's what happens. Did God really say? That's how all this started. Did God really say? And from that point on, doubt starts to move into the human heart. And eventually Adam and Eve take and they disobey, and the world is plunged into sin and death. That's the way all of it began. So in the Garden of Eden, where things were so good, Satan comes in and questions God's Word. And from that point on, sin enters, death takes over. Man, wouldn't it be great if there was an Adam, a new Adam who came in. And he also was tested, but this time, he did not go the way of the first Adam. 
Here's how one scholar summarizes it. Man, there's some great quotes from some scholars this morning. Just warning you, be ready. Here it is. Jesus is the new Adam in Eden. The head of the human race was confronted by the tempter, disobeyed God's word, and set the whole of mankind off on the wrong track. Well, now comes the second Adam. And alone in the wilderness, he, he, in his turn, confronts the tempter. The difference is that he will win. He will be totally obedient, the totally obedient man. Man as he was meant to be. Man who is altogether righteous and who never loses his relationship with God through sin. We're finally going to find Superman. Like, not the one in the comic books. Like, the real Superman. The one that actually can obey, even when tempted. That's the way the story, that's the way the story is going to play out. So you already know the ending. But it's so important to see how the story plays out. Here it is. We'll pick up Luke chapter three. So uh, Luke chapter four. So here we're just going to now just going to just walk through these 13 verses and we're going to pull lessons from here that is going to have something to say to your life and mine today. Luke four, verse one. This is right after the father has spoke a word of praise over the son. You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. The next event that happens Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them, he was hungry. Now I want to just make a, just a, just a couple notes here before we move on in the passage. Twice Luke mentions the Holy Spirit and if it's, a, if it's repeated, it's important. Twice here, we see the Spirit mentioned. Jesus is full of the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit. Now, in, 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 in the way most of us think, the default of the human heart is to think that God, if there be one, wants my comfort and my prosperity, and He wants to make sure I'm taken care of. Because really, the world is about me. That's the, that's the trend, that's the trajectory, that's the propensity of every human heart is to think everything revolves around me. And here Jesus is full of and led by the Spirit into a wilderness to have 40 days of fasting. God in His sovereignty chooses to send His Son into a wilderness where He can go be very, very hungry. I just want to just I hope you see the point. Sometimes the only way you and I learn to follow God is by being driven into the wilderness. And yes, God sometimes drives us there. I mean, we have this idea that God would never make our life uncomfortable. He would never send us into suffering. He would never bring sickness upon us. Sometimes that's exactly what God needs to do so he gets our attention and trains us in the way of Christ is in His sovereignty, His Spirit leads us into a desert. So just let's not forget, just because our lives may not go like we think they should go, doesn't mean God has left us. Sometimes that's exactly where He wants us, so we learn to follow Him. Man, that's a tough one. I would much rather this text say that the Holy Spirit led Him into a palace where He could feast and eat to His heart's content, but that's not what God always does. Holy Spirit leads Him into suffering. And if he leads the master into suffering, oh my, the servant is nowhere, nowhere close to being more important or better than the master. All right. 
So that's just a side note. Let's pick up verse 3. First temptation. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Matthew's account, even then, Jesus adds, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So the Matthew account reads, he adds that. Now what I want you to see here in the first temptation is how tied it is to the first temptation back in the Garden of Eden. Remember, we just noted it, just noted it. The, the key line of attack Satan makes on Adam and Eve is to question God's word. Did God really say this first temptation where Satan points at a bunch of stones and says, turn them into bread, is the same temptation from a different direction, a different angle. Here, if you remember, Jesus has just heard the word of God. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. Here, Satan throws that into question. Would the Father make you starve? If you are the Son of God, as He has declared, would He really put you in this situation? Just so you can prove that you are the Son of God, turn those stones into bread, and then you'll really live. Because you know, can you imagine Satan, there's so much going on here in the temptation. If you don't turn the stones into bread, you'll die. You aren't the Son, God the Father. He actually just blew smoke into your face. There's another way of saying that, but as I was saying it, I realized I probably shouldn't say that <laughs> from the pulpit. Um, you get the point here. Jesus, Satan is questioning if God, the words of God the Father are actually true. Would God the Father make the Son starve? Jesus comes back and says, I'm trusting in what he told me. Even if it leads to my death, I trust what the Father told me. I am the Son in whom he's well pleased, even if I starve. I will not be sustained by bread. I will be sustained by his word. Whew. Here's how one scholar summarizes all that. He says this, Jesus had come to, the Father, to do the Father's will, not his own will. Among other things, well, this meant trusting God to provide for his needs, and soon the Father would send angels to care for him. But Jesus may not have known that. By the way, have you ever thought about that? Jesus may not have known the angels were coming. He didn't know everything that was coming. And for the moment, it was still the Father's will for him to go hungry. Satan was tempting him, as he often tempts us, to be impatient, to get ahead of God's timetable by meeting his own needs in his own way rather than by waiting for God to provide. Man, does that not hit home? God has a word of promise over his son, but Satan comes in and questions that word and says, I got a better way. Man, how tempting it is to go the other way. Jesus says, I trust his word. I will trust the word of my father. And if that means I starve, then I starve. I will trust his word and it will sustain me. That's, what, that's what's going on. It's just, like The first temptation is just the temptation from the Garden of Eden set another way. Let's go to the second temptation. Here it is. We'll pick up with verse 5. The devil led them to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me. 
And I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. By the way, Jesus here quoting the word of God again back to Satan. Two things are happening here. Two very important things are happening here. Number one, do you remember, there's a promise in the Old Testament. I mean, it is rooted in God's word. And I, Jesus surely knew the promise. Because he knew the Bible. He knew the Hebrew Bible. He went to synagogue. He memorized the scriptures as he grew in knowledge and insight. There's a promise that God would one day establish a kingdom. He would give the kingdom to his son. Psalm 2, we've covered it many months or some months ago. Psalm 2, take a look at the promise. This is all about Jesus. Psalm 2, verse 7 and 8. He said to me, again, this is Jesus. We know that this is referring to Jesus. So this would be the Father says to me, the Son, You are my Son, today I have become your Father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The days coming when God the Father would hand over the kingdom of God to the Son. He would be given the throne that never ends. Now, He will have to walk a path of obedience, but He will receive the throne that never ends. Do you see what Satan has just, what Satan has just um, done? Satan has just offered the world to Jesus. But Jesus knows the Word of God says that it's coming from the hand of the Father, not Satan. But Satan here plays loose by himself quoting and playing with the promise. He knows the son will get a kingdom, but he will give the kingdom. Jesus knows the promise. And so what does he do? He doesn't give in. Even, even in his suffering, he will not give in and worship Satan, thinking that maybe, maybe the word of God was a little unclear. Maybe the kingdom's going to come by with the hand of Satan. Jesus won't give in to that, even as he's hungry and tired, and I'm sure frustrated. I'm sure he was, we know, Luke notes, he's hungry. How do you get when you're hungry? I mean, that's rhetorical, but we call it hangry in our home. I don't know what you probably call it, maybe something similar, right? So Jesus is suffering, but he will not give in. He will wait for his father to give him the kingdom because that's what the word of God has promised. You see, the second thing that's happening here, too, is Satan's promising the easy road. Satan is promising Satan a crown without the cross. And every day of the week, we want the crown before the cross. I want an easy life without any work, without any struggle. And that's just not the way this works. As one scholar notes, just note it right here. He summarizes this way. God's way was for Jesus to suffer and to die for sinners and only then to receive the kingdom. But Satan offered it to Jesus on the spot. He could have the ecstasy without the agony. Satan was tempting Jesus to seize the crown without suffering the cross. And what does Jesus do? He leans in on God's word. He says, I will trust the word of my father rather than the promise and the deception of Satan. Third temptation as we finish up in our passage. The devil led him, verse 9, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Again, the same temptation that he ran with in the Garden of Eden, he plays again here in the wilderness with the new Adam. He starts again, if you're the Son of God. Don't forget the last time we've heard the Word of God in this moment, the last word Jesus has heard in this moment that Luke has recorded is God the Father has said to the Son, You are my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Here Satan puts that into question. If you're really the Son of God, and here, he, he doesn't do it, he doesn't play on Jesus' appetite. He now is playing with the, desi- the desire to know something for sure. As if you don't have to walk by faith at all. Just walk by sight. Here, he's tempting Jesus to demand a sign from the Father. If I'm really the Son, then I can throw myself down and he'll pick me up. Then I'll know for sure I'm the Son. Jesus says, don't test God. God spoke it. It's true. I will follow. Jesus doesn't need a sign from the Father. The sign was God speaking. And when God spoke, he trusts that word. You remember what happened in the beginning? Satan said, did God really say? The moment the word of God is questioned, you're on very shaky ground. And so Jesus leans in on the word of God. And he will not demand a sign. As one scholar summarizes it here, he says this, Once again, the devil was trying to get Jesus to test his own identity. How could he be sure? So how could Jesus be sure that he was the Son of God? All he had to do was go on. All he had to go on was what God said. But what did that prove? If Jesus wanted to know for sure, he had to see if God would save him. Satan was tempting Jesus to demand a sign instead of taking God at his word to live by sight rather than by faith. Three times Satan questions, attacks God's word. And every time Jesus keeps leaning on the word he knows is true from the mouth of the Father, I am his son and he is well pleased. If I'm hungry, if I'm frustrated, if I'm tired, if I starve to death, I know that I am His Son, and in me I am. He is well pleased. And I'm going to lean right on that. It will sustain me, and I will not falter from that path. He does what the first Adam did not do. He obeys perfectly. No human had ever faced those temptations and succeeded. But Jesus did. And we needed him to so that one day we could have the same righteousness that he has in this moment. Man, that's good news. Because I know I'm not close to that, and no, nor are you. So the passage ends this way. Because don't think this will be the end of it. The passage ends with verse 13. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. You know where this is going, don't you? You know where we're going to end up. We're going to end at the cross. Where Satan thinks he's beat the Son of God. But then we'll get to chapter 24. I'm not going to tell you what chapter 24 is. You just have to look at it. Like You have to like open your Bible, look at the heading. It's, we're driving to chapter 23. But what Satan doesn't know is there's a chapter 24 in the Gospel according to Luke. And I like that. Maybe you'll read your Bibles. What is Luke 24? What's all, these, what's all this metaphorical language? So, with all of this said, 
I want to drive at one big application. I'm going to try to take it in two different directions. Here we go. It, actually, don't, let's not put that up yet, Carol. I got ahead of myself. The big principle is this. We need to be like Jesus and trust the Word of God like Jesus trusted the Word of God. That's the big, that's, that's like, that's the big application, okay? But I think there are two, two ways you can take it. So the one, so I, I kind of was divided. So let me give you the first one. Here it is. Here's the first one. We are challenged to trust God's Word even when life gets difficult. What, is, what God is calling you to do by, I, sorry, the question is, what is God calling you to do by trusting Him even though it is hard? So I think for some of us, we know there are things that God is calling us to do. We know God's Word is driving us in a particular direction or to a particular decision. We know the Holy Spirit's moving on us, but man, it's difficult, or man, it's going to cause suffering. But we know we need to take that step of faith and move where God is calling us to move. I know for some of you, you need to hear that. What God is calling you to do, even if it's difficult, you need to go there. And you need to trust that God's promises are true. Okay? So that's, that's one direction is assuming you know what God's calling you to do, you know His Word, and you just need a little bit of a nudge in this moment to go do what God's calling you to do. Okay? So I feel like that's one direction, and some of you need to hear that. That could be, we need, we need, to, we need to forgive someone who's hurt us, we need to give more, we need to be kind, we need to keep our mouths shut when we want the last word. I mean, it could be a number of things we know we need to do God's calling us to do. But it'll be difficult. But sometimes, as it often is in the kingdom of God, we do hard things. We do hard things. Because that's what Christ has called us to do. Alright, so that's one direction I think we could go. But as I thought about it, I thought, well, that's probably, like, in general, I don't know that that's the one I need to like, really harp on. Because actually, I don't think that, that deals with the biggest challenge in our day. I actually think it's this one. This next one. In order... To trust God's Word, we have to know God's Word. Can you imagine what it would have been like in the wilderness if when Satan is tempting Jesus, Jesus responds with something like, I know someone told me one time that I'm supposed to like live on God's Word, or I, I, I think I heard in church, I can't, I can't really remember, just I need you to go away. That wouldn't have worked. That worked. Jesus literally quotes the Bible back to Satan. But the only way you can quote Bible back to Satan is if you know the Bible. The only way you can move in a way that God's calling you to move according to His Word and trust His Word is if we know His Word. You see, I think, I think the, greatest, the, the greatest threat to our souls in our day, and you've heard me talk about it, is distraction. I don't think it's that we just are blatantly, you know, flipping God off when we want to do what we want and try to be our own God. Like, I don't, I don't think that's the thing that typically is happening in most of our lives. I think we just are drifting through. And we're letting the loudest voices grab our attention. And what are the loudest voices? They're the ones that are typically paying billions of dollars to put ads in front of your eyes. And make sure to create algorithms so that you just swipe next, swipe next, swipe next. Three hours later, what happened? That, I think, is the greatest threat 
to our souls in our day. Uh, there's a friend of mine who is in grad school uh, working on uh, working on his business degree, and he's reading a marketing textbook. And in that marketing textbook, uh, quotes from another book, but here's the quote. He sent it to me here recently. Here's what this uh, one marketing scholar said. This was 10 years ago, roughly 10 years ago. We are bombarded by images trying to make us buy through the course of the day on mobile phones, computer screens, billboards, at bus stops, on flashing screens, in railway stations, and public transport. Then as we slump in front of television at night, there are plenty more. We are more brand-driven, more advertised to than ever. We are also unhappy, indebted, and extremely wasteful. And the two things may be connected. Hmm. We are a distracted people. And the loudest voices are what will get our attention. And you and I will become what we give our attention to. That's just the nature of being a human. And I didn't have this on a slide because I just started reading this book. And man, I read something in it. And so I'm just being spontaneous and adding it this morning. It's a book by a famous British journalist who was an atheist, came to Jesus, Malcolm Muggridge. Malcolm Muggridge, uh, he died in 1990, but he was invited to give a series of lectures in the late 1970s, I think it was 1976, in London on Christianity and the media. And those lectures were then compiled together and put into a book form. And I just came across this book. And part of putting it into book form is that Malcolm Muggridge gives several other recommendations on books you can read about the media. And he notes one book in particular. He notes a book written in 1972, so for him it was very contemporary. It's a book called About Television by a, a man named Martin Mayer. Never heard of the book, never heard of the author. Malcolm Muggridge gives a summary of the books that he's recommending. And in this book, he notes that Martin Mayer makes a particular point in the book. 1972. 1972. Here's Muggridge's summary of the book. Mayer gives a blood-curdling shape of things to come when he envisions in every home will be built will be built around an entertainment center with up to a hundred channels feeding into its offering, an immense choice of programs and a cable system hooked into a computerized videotape library, making available hundreds of thousands of programs. Muggridge's commentary at the end of it, Good Lord, deliver us. What Muggridge didn't know is we would pay Netflix $12.99 a month to get that stuff pumped into our house. And then, eventually, we'll pay Disney and Hulu and YouTube Paramount Plus, I'm just walking through the Yates, the, the, the Yates Roku screen, um, so that we would have more media content than we could ever watch at, in a lifetime. 1972, he envisions what we would become. We have become a very distracted people. How are you and I going to deal with temptation and struggles and discomfort. How will we trust in God's Word when we don't even know it? 
C.S. Lewis envisioned this even years before any of this. C.S. Lewis makes the point in mere Christianity that you and I have to put the teachings of Jesus in front of our eyes every day. But man, Lewis can say it a lot better than I can. Take a look at how he says it. This comes from mere Christianity. The first step is to recognize the fact that your moods change. I feel like it's always a good thing to recognize, right? So your feelings will pass at some point. The next is to make sure that if you have once accepted Christianity, then some of its main doctrines shall deliberately shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. That's why daily prayers, religious readings, and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. Do you see that? Nothing will automatically stay alive in your mind if you don't feed it. I get ahead of myself. Here's what he says. It must be fed. And as a matter of fact, if you examined 100 people who have lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? Is that typically how it happens? We just, I don't need to get up and come this morning. I'll go next week. And then wake up next Sunday. I, uh, next week. I got it next week. And we just slowly drift. And you remember last week I quoted Lewis as well. You will drift off into nothing. Because if God is where life is, the opposite of life is nothing. You'll drift off. You and I have to be diligent about keeping God's word in front of us. You cannot trust something you do not know. We need God's word to handle the difficulties that are coming or are right here in your life. Because Satan will cause you to question God every time. But we need to be a people who hold on to God's word. We follow Jesus as he lived even in his temptations. We do not want to be a people like the first Adam. We want to be like the second Adam. So here's your next step. You know there are a million ways I could go on this. I'm going one that's real practical. You, I've talked about this. I'm not going to rehearse the story. If it wasn't for showing up at church several years ago, at this small little church that we were at. At that point, I was in my graduate studies at the University of Tennessee. I was not in any type of paid ministry. And I really didn't care about church because I was too smart for Jesus. That is another story for another time. But we kept taking those two young boys. Now we have four kids. But at that time, those two boys, we kept taking them to this small little church that sang those old-fashioned hymns with a preacher that it was hard to follow. I'm hoping that latter one you don't have to deal with, but maybe on mornings like this, you never know. Um, but, but it was that constant going to church Sunday after Sunday that kept me linked to Jesus, even when I won't be there. Here's my next step. Come to church weekly. And then I'm also going to recommend read good biblical devotional, like daily devotional. Do something to keep Jesus in front of you. And I think you can do a lot worse than coming to church every week. 
Interestingly, that's what Jesus did as he went to synagogue week after week. It's actually what the early Christians did as they showed up to learn the apostles' teaching week after week. As you know, I was talking to someone several weeks ago, and we were talking about all these things that help our grow our faith, and I said to them, just go to church. Just go to church. Start there and watch what God will do. I understand that some people don't show up at church because they work, kids are sick. There's a variety of reasons. I get that. But in general, if you don't have, if your absenteeism to church is higher than work, I know what's more important. Most people find a way of getting to work. Because what happens when you don't show up for work when you're supposed to on a consistent basis? You don't have anywhere to go because they're going to fire you. I'm about to get on a soapbox. You don't need that. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word, and we want to trust it. We want to hold to your promises as Jesus held on to your word. Help us. Amen.